I killed the last honorable man 15 years ago. Since then, you've seen his portrait downstairs? Mm-hmm. Is your mouth all glued up with Connie juice? I asked you a question. I said I seen it, sir. <laughs> oh, you got a murderous rage in you, and I like it. Oh, it's life boiling up inside of you. It's good. Welcome to the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast. Look at the film collaborations between Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio. Show me all the blue. Show me all the blueprint. Join Garrett. You don't say that name. Matt. I haven't slept for fucking weeks. And they're returning, Michael Ganeri. A rather high-strung chap. As they look at the cinematic feats of the combined talents from the famed director and big star. We're taking home cold hard cash via commission, motherfucker. All coming up only on Percolated Media. This is bad for everybody. What's next, dead politicians? Games of New York, released December 20th, 2002. Budget, $100 million. Box office, $193 million. Directed, of course, by Martin Scorsese. Ah... Uh... It's great to not have to do that. <laughs> hey, welcome to, <laughs> welcome to Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast. It is Garrett. I'm once again joined by my buddy and partner in crime, Matt Goudreau, who is doing work, quote-unquote, in sunny Florida. How you doing, Matt? <laughs> Just when I thought I was out, he pulled me onto another website. Thanks again. This is, what, three in a row? <laughs> and, Matt, we are joined by... Now, this is a guy we have done podcasts with in the past. He was a, a, an essential part of some of my favorite series that we did over on Binge. And since we last talked, this gentleman has been on TV. That's true. That is true. <laughs> yeah, you were great on America's Most Wanted. You need to tell us, Mike. You were on Jeopardy. Correct. And I haven't gotten to talk to you about this, except in text form a little bit. But what was that like? Man. Well, the crazy part about it is that, I, you know, I can't speak for everybody who's been on the show. But for me, certainly, I was so nervous leading up to it when you're on the fucking plane to L.A., nervous when you're at the hotel room and you got to wake up at 5 a.m. the next morning in order to get there to the studio on time, nervous in the studio, nervous as you do rehearsals, nervous as you meet the other contestants that you'll be doing. And then once you actually get on the set and the lights are on and the cameras are rolling and you're playing the game, weirdly you're not nervous. Or at least I wasn't because it just becomes like competition at that point and you just kind of get that like game mode. You know what I'm saying? And it was a pretty great time except for if I had, I don't know. Who knows? I, well, here's the thing. Had I gotten that right, I would have just been crushed on the very next game by Amy Schneider. Who was the very, who was who was the person in the very next game? So it really the the, the effect was was kind of uh, somewhat muted, more muted than it would seem. I was not about to go on a on a huge uh, victorious run and uh, where it was triumphing with me in like a Roman triumph, like on a horse, like somebody behind me in a laurel wreath. Like that was not going to happen. And you weren't going to be the uh, host in the next five years. That wasn't going to happen. <laughs> no, no, that was what my mother thought was going to happen. She's like, "Oh, when they see you, she, they're going to they, they're going to be like, this should be the person who hosts the show." I'm like, generally, that's not how that works, but okay. 
Well, what was funny about it was, you know, you and I are, I wouldn't say we're close, but, you know, when it comes to these podcasts and everything, we, we talk a little bit. And so I was actually really excited for you. But the thing was, obviously, you guys have a major gag order going. And it was killing yeah. me that I didn't know if you won or not, because I know how bright of a guy you are. I mean, I've known you a little longer than, than Matt has. So I, I thought, man, there is he has a chance on this thing. And then uh, we were sitting there, we were watching it, and we were rooting it on like it was the fucking Super Bowl. Like, we were like, ah, oh, fuck, Mike, come on. And like so we were really, really rooting you on. And it was a funny experience to sit and watch it. And me, Matt, and Adam, we had like a thread going about it. And I was really happy for you, at least for the experience. Did you get to get anything? Well, did they give you T-shirts or anything as you left? Or? Uh, well, see, what did I get? I got some swag. I got... Uh... You got a hat, baseball cap that says "Get a Clue" on it, which I thought was cool. Anyways, that and a Jeopardy uh, 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 COVID mask. Like that, that was that was it. And and a and a two thousand dollar check that should come at some point. It has been in several months since the episode aired, and even more months since uh, I was actually filming it. Still has not come yet. But yeah, as 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 someone has recently uh, asked and been reminded of. You do not get to keep whatever your uh, final winnings are unless you're the person who's the champion of the episode. So even though I finished with 18000 not quite the case. But, you know, it was still a, a cool experience. I have an IMDb page now, which is neat. Uh, nice. it's, also it's also incorrect uh, for the record. Uh, it has, it says <laughs> it that says I have, mine, like, a, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> really? Okay. Well, mine says I was... Left out. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> take the Jeopardy test. You can take it at any time. I, I took it at, like, 3 a.m. or something like that. I mean, and I took it, and I was like, that was probably a mistake. I should have taken it at a time I was more alert. And uh, no, you shouldn't take it at a time you're alert. You should take it at a time when you're, like, delirious, I guess, is the idea. But anyways. <laughs> I've been a part of about five movies and three TV shows, and there's only one correct thing on it. So I, I get what you're saying there. All right. You know, a few years ago, we did Michael Mann for Binge Media, and this was an idea that Mike had essentially come up with. Mike, Mr. Jeopardy contestant, why did you want to do this series so bad? Uh, well, I mean, the truth of it, plain and simple, is that Martin Scorsese is my favorite director of all time. I understand that's a very, uh, sort of an obvious choice, but come on, he's the best. I mean, I think he's the best, whatever. And uh, I think he's uh, just as good uh, now as he's ever been. He's been doing this for, like, 55 years, so it's pretty goddamn impressive. And uh, I've seen... Just about all of his movies. There's a few of the documentaries that I haven't seen, but I, I think all of his features I've seen. And this is going to be a different sort of series for me than some of the other ones I've done with you guys in the past. Because, you know, I hadn't seen any of the, uh, or, or I hadn't seen most of the, the Hannibal Lecter movies. Hadn't seen most of the Shyamalan movies. This is one where I've seen every, we're going to do, every movie that we're going to do, I've seen multiple times. So it's, it's going to be a different kind. I'm going to be coming at this one with a different kind of, uh, Experience and and I think it'll just be fascinating to talk about the modern Scorsese and 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 how he relates to uh, DiCaprio as sort of a, probably the biggest contemporary movie star or, or most reliable in some ways. And uh, I can't wait to get into these movies. Yeah, the passion you have for it is why I wanted to give you the reins for this series. You know, Mike's going to be the one driving the plots. It's, it's something that I, I knew that you had a passion for, and I thought maybe you could excel at it more than I could because I've probably seen these movies with the exception of a couple which we'll get into i've probably seen each of them maybe twice so the fact that you've seen it multiple seen them multiple times is why i wanted you to to take the reins for it now i'll get to my thoughts on scorsese in a little bit but matt how are you on scorsese you know me and you we've talked about a number of directors but scorsese has never been one of them surprisingly we never did any mob movies or anything for binge how, how do you feel about scorsese as a director 
I hate when we have these discussions where I can't have a either contrasting opinion or something that deviates from the consensus. Scorsese's great. Like, what, what do you want me to say? I mean, yes. You you can make a case he's the greatest director to ever live. Certainly of his contemporaries, your Spielbergs, your Coppolas, your Woody Allens. I think he stands above all of them, primarily for, for three reasons. One is longevity. Two is quality. Unlike Woody Allen, he doesn't have stretches where he makes four bad movies in a row and then one great one. And unlike Spielberg, who's great, he doesn't have a 1941 or a Lost World on his resume where it's like, oh, God, that is just kind of beneath you. I think even Scorsese's lesser films all have some redeeming factors. I don't know, man. Have you ever tried getting through Kundun? That, that was a little bit of an outlier, if you ask me, just because of, of the subject matter. Bringing out the dead—that's a terrible one. I—I I, I think. Oh no, no, yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah, I'm with Mike. I like bringing out oh, the dead a lot. Oh, I don't I, think it's in his top ranks, but come on, it's—it's it's really good. Oh man, now you saying you you don't have a contrasting p- opinion? Guess who does? Look, I like Scorsese a bit. There are things of his I love. I rewatched Taxi Driver last year, and I put on my letterbox that. God damn, that movie's way better than I even remember it being. I think the guy has great moments, but there are things about him. I'm not a big, now I know this is a big contrasting opinion. Hopefully we never have to cover this. I'm not a big Goodfellas fan. What? No, I don't. I, I find uh, there's some shots in it, especially the one that's always talked there's about. There's a lot of shots in it. There's, a, some shots, there's some shots in it that are great. I'm not a big fan of that movie because I just find every fucking character contemptible. There are things about his work I don't like. And there are a lot of his movies that I don't like. But the things that I do like, I love. There'll be one that we do in this series that we'll get to that I know will be a fight because, and I think I've probably even mentioned it in the past, if you go back in the archives of me and Mike and Matt's series, you might be able to find it in a blooper or something. There's one of these that I really can't stand and is in probably one of my top ten hated films. So he is somebody who I, I respect, as you mentioned, Matt. He came from that 70s series of directors, Spielberg, Coppola, Lucas. You can include him there. That came out and really set Hollywood on fire. And there are things that I love about him, but there are things, and all of these movies touch on both things that I love and don't like about him. So that's why I thought this series would be interesting, because I'm the one who has the contrasting opinion here. Could be interesting. Could end with you getting like a hatchet in the back. <laughs> No, Mike, Mike, we, we have to go on the record, not unofficially, because I don't want to be indicted. It's going to be like the end of Casino, where we take him out to a cornfield and just beat the shit out of him and bury him in a ditch with Adam, because he also shares kind of the <laughs> Garrett. Now, let's get to the other part of this retrospective, the second part, Leonardo DiCaprio. Now, he is somebody I actually really do like. He is somebody who, hell, go back to, I was a huge Rowing Pains watcher way back when. <laughs> Wow, and, I thought you were going to say Gilbert Grape. No, you, you know what? Throwing pains, man. You know what? I've never seen Gilbert Grape, honestly. Oh, really? No, I've never, ever seen it. I'll probably watch it for this retrospective, actually. Going back to Growing Pains, I liked him on that show. But even after that, even Titanic, I find Titanic to be, I know it's contrasting. I, I find Titanic to be a pretty good film. I think he is a good actor. I think he is somebody who, as you said, Matt, he's very reliable. And there are things that he does that I really do like. And I think that him coming into Scorsese's Pantheon when he did was something that was important because DiCaprio was at a real crossroads around this time. But before Mm -hmm. I get to that, Mike, how do you feel about Leonardo DiCaprio? Uh, I'm a big fan. There are actors who I think are better. Um, There's there's, leading actors who 
are personally more resonant to me. But the thing about DiCaprio that I think is really impressive, film fans find him a little self-serious, which I think is fair. But I think that him being self-serious actually is a sign of quality in certain ways, in the sense that, like, I've seen every... I haven't seen Don't Look Up, but uh, before Don't Look Up, I had seen every, every single DiCaprio film in theaters going back to, uh, I believe, Body of Lies in 2009. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know, right, just because it's, it was like... But here's the thing, and it wasn't like, oh, I'm a huge DiCaprio super fan. It's like, I got, like, a T-shirt with his face on it or something like that. I have to see everything <laughs> he does. But it's just that, like, what's he done since then? It's like Shutter Island, a Scorsese movie, Inception, huge movie everyone saw. J. Edgar, not a good movie, but, you know, on paper made sense. Gatsby, Wolf of Wall Street, Django Unchained. The Revenant's not a great movie, but it is impressive in certain ways. Um, and it was kind of a big deal. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. When he makes a movie, it's like an event. You know what I'm saying? And he's not going to show up and do some sort of paycheck role. Not even necessarily a paycheck thing, but like he he doesn't do like the Matt Damon thing where like Matt Damon will have like six fucking uncredited cameos in a year, and you're like, what does this guy sleep? Like, I don't understand. Like, <laughs> like the craziest one was Unsane. Have you guys seen that one? The, oh, the, the he's in one. that. Yeah, he's in it for one scene. It's so bizarre because oh usually when he does a uh, does like a does like an uncredited cameo or whatever, it's something like Interstellar where he shows up and he's like a really crucial, important role. And the fact that Matt Damon is playing him is adds something to it. Or like at the end of the other recent Soderbergh movie, um, uh, what's it called? No, uh, no sudden move. But I'm saying it's weird. Cause it's like, he literally just shows up in one scene. He's just like a Boston cop. He's like, yeah, you gotta be careful about uh, stalkers there. And like, that's it. There's nothing special about it at all. It's so strange. Anyway, that's it, that's it, that's it, yeah, that's it. We'll, we'll get more into Damon talk in a couple episodes. But, yeah, so, like, DiCaprio, like, he, when he shows up, it's, like, for me, a sign that it's at least a film to consider, you know, even if it doesn't end up being good, like J. Edgar. Uh, it's at least something where you're, like, you know, I have to at least think about seeing this one because it's a major director. He basically only works with really major directors. Um, it's a film that has something kind of to recommend in, in that way. And uh, I think this is kind of, Start of that because before that he had definitely been in some good movies. I mean, I th- I love Titanic and I think that he's uh, really great in uh, Gilbert Grape and I think uh, Ro- uh, I like the Baz Luhrmann Romeo and Juliet. I think that's kind of a divisive film, but I like it. But I think that after Titanic, uh, well, around that time he was so in demand. I mean, this is the height of Leo mania. I mean, yeah. he was absolutely just every fucking magazine cover. Every he was just this heartthrob, but also he had the Oscar nominations. He had some credibility in that sense he wasn't just just wasn't just a pretty face and he could have done after Titanic he could do basically I mean you talked about it you said that you know he's at a crossroads he could have basically done anything any project that he picked was going to become reality he was so in demand that it ruined Danny Boyle's friendship with Ewan McGregor you guys know about this yeah because about the beach beach. yeah like he stopped speaking to Hugo McGregor, or Hugo stopped speaking to Danny yeah. Boyle because the studio said you have to cast DiCaprio. And like, that shows you how in demand. Like, he was out there, he was, like, ending friendships, you know what I mean? Like, just, not by choice, but just like <laughs> yeah. that. When it came to the beach, I, I remember seeing that trailer when the episode one came out, Star Wars uh, episode one, speaking of Lucas. That trailer showed up before Star Wars, and the whole crowd, and everyone knows the Star Wars crowd by this point, the whole crowd booed. You know what I put him at as? I put him as like 
the 90s version of Robert Pattinson. You know, yeah. guys just had a complete hatred every time he came on screen because of what he was associated with. And he really had to work hard to shed that image. And I think him and Scorsese found each other at the perfect time because Scorsese was at a crossroads. I mentioned Kundum. I mentioned Bringing Out the Dead. Age of Innocence. These are not good movies. And he was trying to... Whoa, just... whoa, whoa, hold on, hold on. Oh, I'm trying to back that up for several... Okay, whatever. I can't stop every time I'm taking the ground. <laughs> the Age of Innocence is great. You should... Age of Innocence is a masterpiece. Oh, God. It's so tough to get like, through. It is like, so let, tough let me, to get let me, through. Let me jump in on this, because you guys have had your Leo discussion. <laughs> okay. I, I'm the gay man on this podcast. So <laughs> all right, talking all about right. Leo, it's fucking me. All right. I like Titanic, but that's more for two reasons. The technical wizardry and Billy Zane. Just that—that that is such a one-of-a-kind performance. But Leo, after Titanic, I think he gave the worst performance of his entire career. Did you guys ever see Man in the Iron Mask? I was—I was, in, I was about to bring that up. I haven't seen it in theaters. He's fucking atrocious in that movie in dual roles. Yes, and it's sad that the Disney Three Musketeers movie with Charlie Sheen and Kiefer Sutherland. Pistol whipped the shit out of a Three Musketeers movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Jeremy Irons, and John Malkovich. I saw that in theaters. It was that, and uh, then the next week we went to Wild Things. Which we'll never do a retrospective of. I remember Man in the Iron Mask, and it was terrible. I have not even revisited it since, because I remember just thinking, God damn. I was working at the video store at the time that movie came out. I was like, this fucker belongs on that shelf, if it even deserves to be released at all. Yeah, and these two, DiCaprio and Scorsese, found themselves, ironically, through Scorsese's other muse, Robert De Niro. Because if you've ever seen This Boy's Life, that was kind of, that was Leo's, like, movie. Like, Critters 3 is a king, you know, and Poison Ivy, he just walks by in one scene. And you see the, t- the raw talent that DiCaprio had at such a young age. And it's an intense movie. Like, it's uncomfortable to watch yes. all those scenes with him and De Niro, like, with the mustard jar. And he's yelling at him. Like, it's difficult subject matter, but he, but he handles himself very well. And I think De Niro was wise enough. Uh, he put his relationship with Scorsese on hold, essentially, after making seven or eight movies together between the early 70s to Casino. And obviously, they came back for The Irishman, which I'd love to do someday. So props to De Niro for introducing the two of them. And I have to give Scorsese credit for not pushing back as hard as he could have. Because Scorsese's always been someone who... I don't think it's ever really cast people based on their status or, or, or their place as a big star. Like, right. I think the only other one I can think of where a, a choice prior to this, because there, there's one in this movie that was literally a yes. choice yes. Or, or a mandate, basically, was when he cast Tom Cruise in Color of Money, you know, as the young upstart. Uh, I think that was one that I, I don't think he would have cast him if he had his pick of anybody possible. Uh, I think that was kind of done for star power. So, you know, crossroads here, and it's amazing that you have a movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio, David Day-Lewis, and Cameron Diaz. Like, the fact that that, that has ever occurred, it could really have only happened at this point in history. That's a gr- I love when you see a movie that, like, you're, like, just the, above the title cast is, like, the, there's the narrow window when that could have happened. The, the one I always point to is the fucking uh, Kate and Leopold. Oh, where it's yeah. uh, it's Meg, uh, Ryan it's Meg, Meg Ryan and Hugh Jackman, and it's like amazing because it's like had the movie come out one year earlier, Hugh Jackman wouldn't have done X Men yet, and he would have been a nobody. And if it had come out one year later, Meg Ryan would have been like thirty nine, so ancient in Hollywood terms for women, so she wouldn't have been allowed to be the lead of a rom com. So it's like 
it could only happen within like an eight month window and it happened. But you're exactly right when you talk about like, you know, how star power kind of fits into this. And it's like, you, you mentioned Tom Cruise. I mean, there's a, a story. I, I love casting trivia and there's a story about how the studio for Goodfellas, they wanted Tom Cruise and Madonna as, uh, oh. and had Gorsese successfully pursued that. That would have been a, uh, a uh, well, it would have been a more commercial play. That's, that's, I think we could probably uh, agree on that. And, uh, and, and yet the film would have been weaker for it. And so, uh, yeah, and so the fact that he didn't is a sign, I think, of his, of, uh, that he doesn't, you know, right, like he doesn't based on, on that kind of thing. Here you got a chance, a chance for him to have this passion project because finally get made because he's got this huge star attached to it. And this was a this was a uh, a story that he had been wanting to make for decades. Yeah, nineteen seventy seven uh, was when he originally yeah. uh, did the script with Jay Cox. And originally, this was I, I love casting trivia too, Mike. Originally, he had cast Dan Aykroyd as Amsterdam and John Belushi as <laughs> Bill the Butcher. Which, is that true? I was trying to find something about that. I've heard that before, but yeah. I'm always like, is that true or is that one of those things? But anyway, yeah. But one thing I do know for for sure is that he found the original. There's this book, which I've read. It's a, it's a really interesting, good book, The Gangs of New York by Herbert Asbury. And it's not a novel. It's not a narrative, really. It doesn't have the characters from the film. What it is, is it's a collection of basically every story, myth, legend, piece of gossip, actual news, actual reporting about the underground in New York City from, like, 1840 to like 1920. The idea being that the old gangs of New York went out when Prohibition came in and a new kind of organized crime emerged. And it wasn't these street gangs just doing battle in the middle of the, in the middle of the fucking alleyways and streets anymore. And it's a fantastic book and it's, it's full of all kinds of crazy characters and, and some of the minor people from the movie and little details pop up or straight from the book. Um, and some of the stuff in the book is actually not true. All of it was just the poetry of the gutter, you know what I mean? It was all it was all the stories of the streets and of the bars and and the back alleys and the brothels and all of those just becoming a book. And Scorsese found this in the seventies and he thought this is the story of the New York City that I know and love, but way before me or anybody I knew was ever here, before the Italians were here. This was what was here, and so he spends you know all these years trying to make this film. Interestingly. Matt, you talked about De Niro stepping aside from doing films with Scorsese. De Niro almost played Bill the Butcher in this movie. Yes. And he dropped out. He was cast, ready to play Bill the Butcher, and then he got into some legal trouble. Well, there's two things. He got into some legal trouble in Europe, which ended up not coming to anything, but he was being looked at. I, I don't know. I don't want to get into it. Yeah. But, um, well, he, was also on, he was also on trial for crimes against humanity after starring in Rocky <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I didn't know about that part, but uh, but that just makes sense. But he decided that he wasn't going to go to Italy to film. He, he wanted to stay in in New York, and he was going through a divorce at the time. Thought maybe this is not the time to be traipsing off to Cinecetta, and so Nero dropped out. It was going to be at one point. It was going to be uh, Willem Dafoe was was attached yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. which you, and the, thir- the third name before they cast who they actually did that. Scorsese offered the part to was Tom Hanks. Really? Yeah, and Tom Hanks really wanted it. He liked the script a lot, but he was obligated to Road to Perdition, so he couldn't. Oh. Yeah, technically, Tom Hanks. Those are 
Rogue Traditions are the only time he's really played like an anti-hero or a villain. Obviously, Build a Butcher would have been full villain. But when you replace all those names with Daniel Day-Lewis, it's like, I really can't complain because no, you, can't. you could say about Daniel Day-Lewis, he fucking commits to every role. And he came out of retirement to do this movie. He said, he, he's like Ric Flair, where he's come out of retirement. <laughs> from it's like, he was going to be a pro wrestler. And he did the boxer, and he openly said, I, I think I'm done. And he had worked with Scorsese before The Age of Innocence, which is a great movie, and I will not let it be defiled on this podcast from here on out. And when he took the role, like, He's notorious for method acting, like we talked about this on last time, but he games where he built fucking canoes. When he got this part, he learned, like, how to actually cut meat in the proper way using tools that were accessible at the time. And apparently, like, the, the glass eye he wears, he literally couldn't see out of it. So just, I'm not going to complain. Like, you know, no, he was to play, like, any role. And it's like, yeah, you could have said you were going to cast anybody, but you cast arguably the greatest, maybe the greatest actor of all time, as far as range and all that stuff. So, it's just ironic that the, he played Bill Butcher, who was a notorious, at least in the movie, a staunch critic and defiler of Abraham Lincoln, only to then play <laughs> Abraham Lincoln ten years later. Right, right. And then the other part I always love is that this movie basically takes place at the same time and in the same city as Age of Innocence. But they might as well be on different planets. So it's yeah. the, the setting of him is so crazy and, and the way that the characters behave and everything. And he's the lead of Age of Innocence. He's playing the, the polar opposite kind of character here. So I think with De Niro, you lose certain amounts of what Delus is bringing, but you'd also add like a, a different kind of gravitas to him being like the ultimate avatar of New York. But anyways, yeah, should we get into it? One more thing before we get into it, Mike. I, sure. I did want to say one more thing about this series is what I love about this series and the reason why I really jumped at it and me and Matt, really, we, as people who follow us know that it, 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 it was tough to schedule things over at the other place. And me and Matt, you know, we didn't really find a spot for this series because there were just other things we needed to do as part of an obligation over there. But one of the reasons I really was anxious to get into this is because today we'll be talking about a period piece, pretty much, you know, with some action or what. We, we have a biopic. Coming up, we have a psychological. We have a remake of a for, we have a remake of a foreign film. You have a yeah. pulp thriller novel. You have a all out balls out comedy. Yes, uh, you know we talk about the five points of New York. These are the five points of genre yes. as far as the varieties was in the sixth. Their new film sounds like it's going to be different. You know, you see a crime movie, people automatically think, "Oh, it's just going to be The Departed." I'm like. No, it's not. I think it's going to be something, something great to behold. Yeah, it's a Western, basically. That's why I love that I, I jumped at the chance of this series. Is we're doing a little bit of everything here, and Michael Mann was great. I'm really proud of those shows. But the thing about that series was, you know, you had so much pathos, and we were doing essentially the same type of film every single time. We're not doing the same types of films here. You know, they're all different genres, and that's why I really, really wanted to do this and see how both DiCaprio and Scorsese excel or don't excel at it. So. Anyway, yeah, that's why we're doing the series. Mike, go ahead and jump into it, sir. All right, so the first thing we see and the first thing we hear is a, a razor blade scraping across a man's face until it draws blood. And who is this man who has this razor blade? Why, it's none other than Liam fucking Neeson. Yes. Uh, playing Priest Valen, an Irishman, of course. And he's there with his young son, who he is teaching about how uh, uh, the blood... Save on the blade. 
I'm going to try and keep my impression. <laughs> this episode, but there's going to be a lot of opportunities to not save do it. me from myself. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so they're in they're in darkness. They're in this mysterious kind of place. And uh, he takes the razor blade and sees a priest. He's got the clerical collar, and he goes out. And it's like some sort of twisted, dark version of the Flintstones. They're like in a cave underground. There's like, everything's fucking stone and 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 rock, and and everyone's wearing like weird clothes and they got like fucking clubs and shit and they're walking out and this sort of big mob is forming and one of them is John C. Riley and one of them is a woman who has razor blades for fingernails. Oh my god, uh, yes. Let's let's talk about her. I mean, <laughs> you talk about something Friends that doesn't belong in this Ruger. movie, yep. but I love it. I'm not saying that as a uh, as a bad thing. She comes out of fucking left field. She looks like she she jumped from one of Sam Raimi's movies, Matt. She she just doesn't belong here, but that's why I love her. Like Scorsese, I know there was a fight in the editing room over this movie, and I know Scorsese worked with that piece of shit Harvey Weinstein on this, and they really really fought with him on how contemporary to make this and how much of commercialism they want he wanted to put in this, and they really trimmed this a lot. From I think it was that the first cut was like two almost three hours. Yeah. Almost four. Almost four hours, yeah. And they, they really made him trim this. But I gotta say, the build-up to this first fight is fucking phenomenal. And oh, yeah. I, I think the way he films these characters, this is when Scorsese's at his best. The way he films and introduces these characters. We're getting introduced to a lot of different characters here. John C. Riley, the woman with the fucking fingernails, who I read was actually a real person. They based it on a yep. real person. Yeah, Hellcat Maggie. Yeah. Brendan Gleeson. Yeah, Brendan Gleeson. Like, these are all not really essential characters to the story. But they introduce us to the world, and I really love how Scorsese builds this. It's also sort of a kind of Scorsese paying homage to himself. It's basically the Copacabana walkthrough in Goodfellas where you're meeting all the characters. He's kind of doing that here where these are, they add flavor to these gangs because this movie could have easily been in lesser hands. It might as well be a Lucky Charms commercial with all the Irish stereotypes. (laughs) Um, and, And thankfully, Scorsese. He knows enough to not do that, and all these characters have their own unique quirks. And I think one of the things that he does remarkably well in this movie, across the board, and I have to credit his art director on this. Absolutely. Is that the way he stages the crowds, it's remarkable blocking. And the way he frames these battle sequences where it's these huge masses of people on real sets. These are all practical sets. At this point, I would say this is Scorsese's most technically challenging movie, if you if you ask me. Maybe second to Last Temptation of Christ because that's so far back in history. And of course, there was all the, the controversy surrounding it. But I think as, a, as an achievement, this is, I don't want to say him maturing as a filmmaker because he's always been very sophisticated, but showing that he could tackle something as grandiose as this movie yeah. is, but still pay attention to finite detail. Yeah. And Some, he, something that's epic. Yeah. It, and, because that's really what, what this is. I mean, it's, yeah. he's never, he's never worked on something with this kind of budget before, something with this kind of thing. The filming in Italy at Cinecitta, and this is the exact moment when, like, it's kind of like the last moment. There's a story about how George Lucas, of course, a friend of Scorsese, even to this day. I love this visited, story. <laughs> yeah. He visited the set and he saw this incredible set that they built of the five points with all the buildings and the streets and the cobblestones and everything like that. And, and he basically, went up to Scorsese and like, you know, you can do all this with computers now. I love that. <laughs> I fucking love that so much. <laughs> yeah, and we'll, we'll definitely get into the sets and everything, but <laughs> that's fucking phenomenal. 
One thing, one thing I do love about this too, Mike, is that in the build up to this fight, you know, you watch these movies like let's say Braveheart. How do all these guys know to come up to that line at that exact time? You know what I'm saying? And here Scorsese is building those reasons. We know that something's coming, and, and that's the tension behind it. And the questions I always had about how people know to go to those paddle lines at that time are answered in this as well. Yeah, and you've got that great music playing, that, like, oh, fight yes. and drum. It just gets you fucking pumped, and, like, they're going there, and it's, it's like, this crazy... Total, I mean, Dante Ferretti was the production designer. It's the great Dante Ferretti. And you've never seen any set like this before. I, this tenement that they're crawling out of is just this insane, like, construction of wood and stone. And it just is, like, absolutely incredible. Like, all these extras. And it's, this is so amazing. I mean, this opening is so incredible. And, and they merge out. And, of course, they're joined by uh, Brendan Gleeson, the largest and most Irish of the large Irishmen, playing Monk. I love the character's name from this one. And they go out and they meet the rival gang, the native, led, of course, by uh, Daniel Day-Lewis as Bill the Butcher. And uh, how do we describe Bill the Butcher exactly? Oh, boy. Uh, well, in order to describe uh, Bill the Butcher, you have to describe Daniel Day-Lewis, and that's what you guys have already pretty much done. I mean, the way he goes all out in films, you know, I think some people kind of kind of look at that and, and kind of scoff at it. I actually respect the hell out of it. You know, I, I love an actor that goes all out like this. And there's also another story where Scorsese and DiCaprio took him out to lunch right after they were done filming and he was still in fucking character while they were out to lunch this guy goes all out and i do know the character bill the butcher wasn't a killer you know he was just a meat cutter but i love bill the butcher in this he has that big ass top hat you know ironically love the hat because he'd be playing lincoln later it's so fucking just befiling to see all this and uh you know and then when he takes off that hat like he's just got that greasy baldy hair you know, oh, it, so it, it's just like there's so many dimensions to any role Daniel Day-Lewis does. And, you know, I'm not going to fight you guys on this. I think he's fucking phenomenal in this. He did get an Oscar nomination and he fucking deserved it like he always does. because He should have won, first of all. Like, yeah. It, it, and also, he really should have been in supporting actor, not main actor. But it's kind of the kind of the Anthony Hopkins thing in, in Top of the Lambs where his presence is always felt, even when he's not on screen. So that's kind of why they put him in lead actor. And this is also the... The, the showiest role, and if you ask me, like, what's my favorite Daniel Day-Lewis performance, I'm probably going to say this. Wow, that's um, that's interesting. I know everyone's going to yeah. say, what about There Will Be Blood? I like theatrics. I um, like this better than There Will Be Blood, too, um, yeah. And, and I like sort of the... I think his method approach here is outstanding. Well, like, he learned how to throw the circus knives. At one point during filming, he got pneumonia and refused to wear a warmer jacket because it wasn't period detail. And only the only the the slowing embrace of death convinced him to get medical treatment. Like that is the ultimate side of method acting. And pardon the pun, every time he's on screen, you can't take your eyes off him. You really can't. And that opening intro shot of him too is so incredible. He comes out with this gang of guys, and they got on the the, the weird. I, I'm trying to think if they have top hats in the first scene. I don't think they do. But there's that sort of faraway shot of him, and then it's a medium shot, and you're closer on him. And it's this extreme close-up of his fucking glass eye with the yeah. American eagle. Oh, it's so good. It's got this great punctuating kind of uh, musical sting to go with it. And it's one of the things that's so great about Scorsese and his cla- his uh, most frequent collaborator, Thelma Schoonmaker, the editor, is that they're willing to make those really bold editing choices like that. Because you do that wrong, and it can be laughable. You know what I mean? This extreme close-up 
on an eye, and, oh. and so it gets you so pumped for what's about to happen. If Tarantino did this, it would have been like the Glorious Bastards, where every single time they introduce a character, they stop the reel and they go, that's probably what, in lesser hands, this would have been. Yeah, well, I know what you mean, is that there's like a, well, uh, there's certain things, I don't know if I want to give away too much, there are certain things in this area where, well, you know, we talked about how this was, this was, Harvey Weinstein was involved in this and stuff, and there was a lot of dispute between Weinstein uh-huh. and Scorsese, and I'm going to go ahead and give a little bit of what I think about this film right off the bat, which is that this is, I think, by far, when you watch it, by far the most compromised film that Scorsese's made, in the sense that you watch it, and I think it's impossible to watch this film, and whatever you think about it, whether you like it, love it, hate it, I think it's impossible to watch this film and think that this is exactly what Scorsese planned on making when he set out. And that, and that hasn't been disputed. Case. There were a lot of compromises made. And the thing was, Scorsese and Weinstein were good friends leading up to this. And I think there was a little bit of a falling out after because Weinstein did force a lot of changes on him. One big one that we'll talk about here in a bit. But you definitely see it. But what I love about Scorsese is you don't see that on screen. I, I think he, the way he flows, at least this first half hour or so, is so good that I don't really think about the compromises until we get later on in the film. I think there's story pieces that feel more like a Weinstein affectation as far as, no, you got to emphasize this versus other parts. I would say this, if you're looking for a, for a film as far as not quite equating the not fulfilling the director's original vision, I would compare it to Once Upon a Time in America, where the original cut for that was barely over two hours and Leon when he got his way, he was able to release something that was close to four hours. And it's so funny that Scorsese now, the Irishman is three and a half hours long. It, even Martin Scorsese at this point, he couldn't overpower the wine yeah. No, and I think this movie is kind of an important point in Scorsese's career. I was 10 years old when this movie came out. And this is the first time I had become aware of Scorsese as a director. I don't even know what shows it would have been. I got entertainment night or something like that and there was definitely stuff on the history channel where they were like really pushing and there oh there was a whole thing in entertainment weekly which i read pretty religiously back then and um they were really pushing this idea of scorsese finally having made his passion project like is this the culmination of his career and it like taught me the name martin scorsese like the the, the big push for this movie and i think that this movie is in, in retrospect kind of a turning point in his career because this is the movie where he becomes really sort of canonized in a way as like the major American director because before that there was there was more kind of ups and downs and like he's never been a, a super commercially successful director and like his trajectory with the Oscars was always kind of like he got nominated for Goodfellas but he lost to Kevin Costner like he got nominated for Last Station of Christ but that movie was otherwise completely shut out and then he's so controversial and this one, he ended up not winning anything, which is crazy. They got like ten. 12 nominations, 11 yeah, nominations. Led, I want to say I led the field. Yeah, they had year. 10. Yeah. And from this point on, he's always, not to just reduce everything to Oscars, because you certainly shouldn't do that, but like from this point on, basically, if Scorsese makes a movie, it is in the conversation. And he, it's more likely that he'll get an, an Oscar nomination for whatever movie he makes from this point on than he won't. Because since then, the only ones that he hasn't had a, an Oscar nomination for are Shutter Island, which was like a February release. They were not pushing that one as an award thing at all. And then Silence, which like nobody saw because it's one yeah. of the most miserable like 
like harrowing films like ever released by an American studio. But so we meet all the guys, we meet all the all the gangs, the O'Connell guard, the plug uglies, the shirt tails, yep. the Chichesters, the forty yeah, 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 Oh yeah, that's warriors. what I thought of too. Yeah. yeah, I thought of the fucking news anchor rumble from Anchorman. <laughs> That's always what I think of when I see this. It's that is that's what they're riffing on, right? I might I could be I could be wrong, but I think that's what that's what they're saying. Ron got to build a bunch of mustaches. <laughs> you might be right. <laughs> so they go to battle these different gangs, the one side representing the native, the, the native born US citizens, Protestants, not Irish, and the other ones representing the Irish immigrants, and they they go to battle and it's all very bloody, all very edited, very chaotically, and there's some it, 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 an interesting soundtrack yeah, choice, right. I think, as well. With this weird what what do you, you guys think? What do you yeah. guys think of the battle? Uh, I I, I kind of dug it. I thought Scorsese filmed it pretty well, but it, it did kind of feel a little too Braveheart-ish for me. I just like the visual aesthetic of blood smearing on a oh, snow-laden yeah. battlefield. That always tickles my fancy, and it's you know it's kind of shocking at this time to see Liam Neeson be killed off in a movie's opening scene. Yeah. Because he was a big star. He's always been a big star. He was after Star Wars. And I, I guess he had originally been offered the Brendan Gleeson character. And he said, I want to play the main, the guy who's called Priest. Huh. Interesting. Um, and Liam Neeson's also Irish. So I'm sure this this was a passion project. He wanted to be involved in whatever capacity sure. possible. But but yeah, I think Scorsese does, for, for a guy who had never done anything of this scale as far as combat, I think he pulls it off pretty well. Especially because there's also... You have the harder challenge. It's all choreography. You don't have people like revolutionary in Roll Numbers the Patriot where they just stand there and it's firing lines and you just, you, you do one shot of the American army, you get one shot of the colonial army just shooting back and forth. This is a lot more intensive as far as what you have to shoot. And to go back a little bit to what you're talking about, you know, Liam Neeson being this and him being Irish and everything. I feel like this movie comes right at the, it's, this is like at the tail end. I think this is like kind of the culmination of that Irish Hollywood kind of obsession that was really big in the 90s. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You had yeah, well, far the, most, away... the, the weirdest thing, how the fuck is Colin Farrell not in the Leonardo DiCaprio? Okay, because uh, okay, he wasn't famous because Tigerland, which is the movie that like nobody saw, but, but like the three people who did see it were all casting directors, <laughs> and they all went on to put him in, in Phone Booth and, and Daredevil and then stuff, Minority Report. And like the things that like made him a name, Tigerland hadn't come out yet. So he's just he's just some sh- like schmo in Ireland, just like doing like Irish soap operas. Like nobody knows who he is. But you you watch this from the vantage point of today, and you're like, yeah, so this should have been Colin Farrell. Yeah, which was yeah, right. I mean, no one knew who he was, but like in retrospect, like you need a guy to be like a rough and tumble Irish, you know, street tough guy. With a heart of gold and maybe some inner sadness, it's like, yeah, get Colin Farrell. But you know, through the, you look at the past and everything, you know, got 2020 vision. But at, at the moment, it's not the case. Well, technically, it's 2002 vision. <laughs> <laughs> well, there wasn't this made. This was made actually a couple years before, wasn't it? Wasn't this filmed around the middle of 2001? I think I want to say. No, earlier. Wow. Like summer yeah. 2000. Scorsese takes a long time to edit, anyways. Yeah. And you add on to that the whole dispute with the wine scenes over the cut, and I think also some 9-11 yes. controversy, which we'll get into, I, I, or maybe. Uh, I think all of that pushed the movie back even further, so it, it was filmed well over two years before it actually Mike, came out. Why did they call them the Dead Rabbits? 
Uh, you know, I would need to read up on this again, but I think that it has to do with dead sounds like a word in Gaelic, meaning tough, something like that. And so, I, I, I this might not be right, um, but that's what I've So I, I can, this is the most convenient name resolution. There's been some pretty egregious ones in movies that are all escaping me because I'm exhausted. But the dead rabbits were named because somebody threw a, literally threw a dead rabbit into the center of a room during a meeting. And... Some people viewed that as an omen, and they formed their own gang who used their symbol of a dead rabbit on a pike. All right. Uh, oh, there you go. <laughs> and they were doing something a little bit more, I don't know, gratifying later on when they were called the Mulberry Boys, because that's what the police department called them, because that, you know, Mulberry mm-hmm. Street's in the five points, so that's kind of okay. where, where, where right, dead rabbits I wasn't sure about from. that. And at the very end, we, of course, we see this kid come up to his dad, and here we go. We're, we're starting the very pulpy plot of the revenge of a father. Totally. You know what I thought? This movie basically has the plot of a kung fu movie. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Great it's call. It's Enter the Dragon. And it's, I mean, everything in this movie is so um, kind of heightened and like, it, it is so much about if you do, if you battle somebody, you do it face to face and like front of everyone to prove that you're the superior warrior. It's very kind of like very old fashioned. And the plot is so like, classical in that sense you know and it's it's this kind of very kind of stock plot in a lot of ways and that's added to this setting which is clearly the thing that most interests scorsese is the idea of recreating this setting and 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 how that reflects the themes i think more than the actual kind of abc plot and if there are areas of this film that i think are kind of a letdown it's mostly relating to that as opposed to the rest of the to, to the atmosphere and the environment of it yeah, the, the atmosphere I, I and the environment are great. I will add another subplot later that I think could have been cut, but I'm with you on that. I think mood and everything else he gets right. But there are just certain parts of this movie that every time I want to love it, God, I, I can't. And and this is one of them. We've seen this plot a hundred fucking times. To, to make the movie more cinematic, it goes out of its way to emphasize the revenge component and the other major plot machination that requires all these characters to get together. I think those are the things that Weinstein probably implemented more to make something like this appeal to a general audience as opposed to Scorsese really wanted to make a movie not just about the gangs, but he really wanted to focus on the draft riots. Mm-hmm. That seemed to be where his heart really lied. And for the record, what's depicted in this movie what the draft riots when we get it is nowhere near as horrifying as what actually happened. No, and it's it's kind of odd. Well, I mean, I get it, but the, the way that this film concludes is kind of a strange take on the on the history. I think. But yeah, the, the, but but you're right. The the main plot is basically Enter the Dragon meets the Princess Bride. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> you, you killed my father, prepared to die. It's weird that there's no Colin Farrell and there's also no Killian Murphy. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah. We jump forward 16 years. A- Amsterdam, who's the little boy, is now a grown-up, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, with probably his worst haircut in cinematic history. <laughs> what is up with his all that wor- grease? His worst haircut. Not, not the worst in cinematic history. It's probably his worst. Uh, I would say his wig and Man in the Iron Mask is, is more absurd. This is just... You talk about Bill Butcher's hair being greasy. This looks like it was dipped in oil before I, every It's take. insane. Yeah, his, his his hair threw me off. I hadn't seen this movie in over 10 years. So when when I see this, I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> that is the greasiest fucking hair. It's because he's so, like, at this point, he's so pretty. Like, he's just absolutely off of yeah. Titanic. But they really have to, like, dirty him up to try and make him remotely credible as this character. And it, I, 
don't think they actually succeed, which I think is one of the problems with the movie. And I, I guess maybe now is the time to get into this. I think that there's kind of two problems with him in this movie. Uh, and seeing as how he's the main character of the movie, that's not great. One of which is that he's just kind of, and it, this part isn't really his fault. It's just that he's not credible as a tough 19th century gang leader at this time. He just doesn't have that kind of killer feel to him. He seems like too much of a modern actor. He seems like too much not uh, physically intimidating enough. He just is not believable in that sense. And there's his accent. Like, being an accent cop is kind of annoying. Like, you don't want to be too... And it's like he's playing somebody from 150 years ago. So, like, who the fuck knows what he would have sounded like or whatever. But, like, it's kind of a weirdly awkward performance. And I think you can tell when you watch that he is trying really to keep up with what he's doing. And he is putting in effort and he is trying to make his character sort of come alive, but I just don't think he succeeds. I'll jump on both sides of that. I think you're right, especially in these opening scenes with him. They are really awkward, but there are times when he has to step up. Let's face it, he's acting opposite Daniel Day fucking Lewis in this movie. And there are times when he's in the scenes with him. I actually do think he's rather credible, but these opening scenes and the love story, which we'll talk about, I I, I don't like him at all. I think a lot of it has to do with the material he's given. And yeah. part of it is also he's, like Garrett mentioned, he's being dominated by Dan Day-Lewis both literally and in the, the script. But part of it is also timing. You look at, right before this, he made Catch Me If You Can, where he gives a very rich, very nuanced performance. He gets to wear a lot of different hats. Mm-hmm. And he shows a lot of charisma in that movie. Here, I don't want to say it's a, it's a black hole of charisma, because I'll never say that about Leo, but his character feels very underwritten, which is baffling for a three-hour movie, and this is your protagonist. It's sort of the, this is why you don't wait 15 years to take revenge. Shakespeare got it fucking right in Hamlet, or in Richard III. When people take their opportunity, they seize it immediately. There's none of this waiting bullshit. And you get to see the machinations. You see the characters develop in those. Look, I didn't need to see fucking Batman Begins, where we see Amsterdam travel the world and learn how to infiltrate crime rings. But I needed more groundwork for this character in order for me to invest in this character. I know what you mean, because it's funny you bring that up, because I always thought that it's funny that in this movie, you know, they cut forward 16 years, and it's him getting out of a reformatory, which is, like, not that impressive. It's weird, like, I kinda, it's almost like Billy Madison or something like that. Like, he, is he in there with a bunch of kids? He's right there <laughs> when he was, like, you know, eight or whatever, and, like, he's still there, and he's just now getting out. It's like, what... Are we supposed to be impressed with that? I don't know. I always thought that's kind of funny. Like, I really would love to see a shot of him with a bunch of 10-year-olds. Just, like, just playing stickball or something. I just think that would be so funny. But, um... <laughs> You're right, huh? He, like, he doesn't really feel like somebody who lives a normal life. His whole being in this is focused on that revenge. Do we ever see him have fun in no. this? In Not a sexual really. way, yes. Um, but <laughs> that's about well, it. Well... <laughs> Maybe someone with chemistry, but no, I like, I, I just don't see him being a quote unquote normal person in this. And you can make the case that that has to do with the character and what he's playing. But I, I think you guys are right. I think the script yeah. undermines him in that where he's not really that well written. He's not really as well written as somebody who you would root to actually take revenge on his dead father. I, I just don't like this character at all. And I'm going to put a lot of that on the script, but I'm going to put some of that on DiCaprio as well. I just don't think he was ready for this. And it's it's weird, too, for a Scorsese film, because I feel like he always 
find something to identify with in the central character. I feel like the central character of every one of his films is so important to his conception of the film, whether it's Travis Bickle and Taxi Driver or Jake LaMotta and Raging Bull or Jesus and Last Temptation of Christ. Like, I feel like he only makes a film if he really has a handle on the main character. And this is like an exception to that. And I think it's not a very good exception because of, because of that reason. Out of prison and he, or uh, out of the reformatory, and he, he goes, uh, returns to the five points where uh, Bill is now reigning as sort of the king and leader of all the gangs. Everyone is in fear of him. And he's even being courted by the local political machine led by Boss Tweed, played by Jim Broadbent, who was really having a moment at that time. I think this was yeah. the year he went to the Oscar, or was that the previous year? I think Iris was 2001. Okay, so yes, the previous year. And that was the same year as Moulin Rouge. So he's really like, this is the real the year of, or the time of Broadbent. You're skipping over the one time I cheered in the theater in this movie. Oh, what was that? I, I finally got to see Henry Thomas again. Okay, I, I was about to bring him up. Yeah, like I, I can't believe this guy who was in E.T. is all of a sudden in this massive Martin Scorsese production. Now, he's a pretty much a nothing character, but I, I, it was nice seeing that, oh, wow, Henry Thomas is still working. Well, you forget, though, that Henry Thomas, uh, of course, was Elliot and E.T., but in this era, he was the perpetual second banana to whoever the young right. hunk of the year was. Yeah. Because it was like, in 94, he's in Legends of the Fall, where he's like, oh, that's right. like he's, yeah. Brad Pitt, yeah. he's Brad Pitt's younger brother, 99 or 2000, I forget which one, he's in All the Pretty Horses, where he's Matt Damon's little sidekick. In here, he's like second banana to wheel. Like, he's always like the second guy who stands next to the more famous, better-looking young hunk and has to make them look better in comparison, which is kind of a rough lot, but, you know, he's still, he does a good job That's here, a great I guess. That's point. Great point. He's, I always wish Henry Thomas had a better career than he actually did. Because you watch him in E.T., and that kid should have been hit with Joe Osment without all the issues, and really could have taken off. But you look at the 90s, outside of the Moby Dick he was in with Patrick Stewart. He didn't really get a lot of big roles. Yeah, and go back to Unless our count first fucking cycle four. Yeah, yeah, and go back to our first release podcast since we launched, and Matt and I really had a field day at just reaming him for whatever reasons Mike Flanagan had to cast him as Jack Nicholson's character in uh, Doctor Sleep. He's been in some odd, odd productions as well. Flanagan's made up for it, though, with Haunting of Hill House and Midnight yeah. Mass. He's done what DiCaprio and Scorsese have done, where he's taken his career. It only took 20 years longer for him. Yeah, I was going to say, he's 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 become uh, Mike Flanagan's De Niro, I guess. And here he, he's playing uh, Johnny Sirocco, which is uh, an interesting name for a character, who was a real guy, but not he wasn't anything like this guy. He was not, he lived like way later and was Italian and he wasn't Irish. A lot of characters in this movie. No, it's a lot. The complete antithesis of the character he's playing. Yeah, right. Well, a lot of the characters in this movie are like, they take the name of somebody who existed and they put him on somebody who was totally different. There was so a like real life. <laughs> kind of. Um, but like there was a real life guy named Monk who was like, he's in the book Gangs of New York, but he was not a giant Irishman. He was like a small guy who everybody thought was Jewish, but he wasn't. It's was like a weird thing. Anyways. And he like lived many years later, but it's like, I feel like Scorsese just like, he was like picking and choosing like elements from, the book and just kind of mixing them up in a big salad bowl and like just kind of putting it all together and 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 adding these elements together and and Johnny Sirocco meets 
Amsterdam, and he introduces him to the new uh, corners of the five points and everything like that. And it's a little bit like the scene in Goodfellas where they're walking into the club and you see Johnny two times and Mikey eyes and Frankie the Killer. I don't know, but you see what I'm saying. But he's introducing him to all the gangs and everything like that. And it's these great kind of little shots of like all these weird 19th century gangs that speak different languages and stuff. It's so great. But um, yeah, that's that's Scorsese uh, once again building the world, right? And yeah. um, and th- those are the scenes in this movie again that I actually really did like. And also, it's about around this time that we're introduced to our other, our third build major character, Jenny Everdeen, oh. played by Cameron Diaz who is a, uh, a pickpocket, a, a bit of a con artist, has a bit of a history. I, I think I can get a, a general vi- sense of where, we're, where, where we feel about Cameron Diaz in this movie, but I'm opening the floor for Diaz thoughts now. Oh, boy. Well, Garrett busted that door down like a Kool-Aid yeah. man. So I'm going to let him go. All right. I, I feel for Cameron Diaz in this because I think the reasons she was cast are not secret. I think the Weinsteins, which is kind of scary to look back at now, but they pushed for her to be cast because she was more quote-unquote contemporary. Scorsese had actress by the name of Sarah Pauly in mind, who I think could work in a role like this as a period piece, but the Weinsteins pushed against that, and they pushed for Cameron Diaz. This was Pete Cameron Diaz. Yeah, There's Pete Cameron Diaz. Mary was right before this, Any Given Sunday, that piece of shit, Vanilla Sky. Sorry, Adam. Yeah, this was Pete Cameron Diaz, and I see the reasons you cast her in this on that, but at the same time, you look at her, she is good when she needs to be, but she's good in modern projects. She is yeah. one of those actresses who you cannot put a wig on and put in a period piece, and I think no. that she really suffers in this movie, and I don't know, man. You mentioned Lucky Charms. I think she looked at a lot <laughs> lot of Lucky Charms commercials, and that's how she got her accent for this movie, because she's awful at it, and I don't put that on her, I just put that on miscasting. I feel about her the way most people feel about Sofia Coppola in Godfather 3. I think she kills the movie every time she's on screen. Now let me say, much like Sofia Coppola, I can't 100% blame her, I think she's just out of her depth. I don't think she's a great actress. There's something kind of... (laughs) There's something about Cameron Diaz that only works (laughs) in certain movies. The Mask was her first movie, and it's still her best role, if you ask me. Uh, she, and it was all she just, could do comedy, you know what I mean? I think that's kind of one of the bigger issues here. I think she's a playing character that's just it's not suited for her. And you no. also mentioned Sarah Pauly. Let's not forget before that, Sarah Michelle Gellar was cast. She was cast, and she had um, obligations to Buffy. She couldn't get out of Buffy. Wow, that's, that's, a, that's a real path not taken there. Yeah, and you know what? Honestly, as much as I love Sarah Michelle Gellar, and I really do, mostly because of my love for Buffy, I think she would suffer from the same thing where don't put a wig on yeah. her. She's also too modern. Yeah, that, um, that's exactly it. Yeah, modern sensibilities. Uh, and this is also a character who's not dependent on age. I know Scorsese, he loves to bring back past collaborators. Michelle Pfeiffer should have played this role. Oh yeah. my god. That would old. have been that would have been it would have been a different character just based on that. Yeah. But that you need someone of that caliber. Yeah, you really um, do. Who well, can come in and just own a part like this. I mean, or somebody who he'll work with in the future in a few years, Kate Blanchett. That oh, could be yes. interesting on it. She yeah, would have been so strong, you know. But Diaz is just kinda of, I mean, she's just really miscast on multiple levels. Like not believable in the period piece setting. Not credible with her Irish accent. Hers hers is worse than DiCaprio's and like more, a lot shakier, like really goes kinda in and out. And I think that she struggles like I think that when she's in a comedy, she really like in Something Got Mary, The Mask, and, and uh, being John Malkovich too, which is like a very uh-huh. good comedic performance. I think that she does really well in comedy, but I think that she struggles with drama for for whatever reason. And I think all three of those are combining here with a character who's probably not 
is is not the best written character in the film by a long shot. And, and so that combines to make this love story that she has with Amsterdam, with DiCaprio, a real snooze. Yeah, and um, that, and let's point yeah. to the reason why she's here. She the reason why she's here is because DiCaprio was still riding that Titanic wave, right? Totally. And Absolutely. so this is them putting in a love story because we need to see him woo a girl yeah. like he wooed Kate Winslet. And they even put Fuck, orange... Kate Winslet should play this role. Yeah, that would have been great too. Yeah, that would have been good. They you know they put an orange wig on her for Christ's sake. They really want to go back to that sensibility, and it just doesn't work. No. So introduced to those characters and sort of start to get the sense of how things operate in the five points at the time. It's the middle of the Civil War. The Emancipation Proclamation has just been signed and things are getting very tense because there's been a new draft in place and they're going to be drafting people to fight in the Union Army and to be shipped down south to fight. And a lot of people in the five points aren't down with that idea because uh, a lot of them are poor and they don't believe in going to fight another war for reasons that they don't relate to. Uh, a lot of them are ra- extremely racist, which we'll, we'll, we'll get into. Yeah. Uh, Bill despises seemingly everybody who's not a true blue native born American. He hates the Irish, he hates black people, he hates uh, every every kind of ethnicity except his own and seems to have contempt for so many people and, and yet, as Day-Lewis does it, he's so uh, uh, charismatic that you can't help but watch him. And it's it's a really interesting performance in that way because it's so you can't help but be uh, uh, drawn to the power of Day Lewis' performance and with the way that this character is written, which is so humorous. That's one of the things that I think is so uh, great about this character. He's so clever in how he uses his wordplay and his language with the people around him and how he intimidates people and toys with people like a cat with a mouse, toys with them psychologically, toys with them physically, and uh, sort of seems to hold everybody, whether they're a, a gang member or a politician, sort of seems to hold everybody with the same kind of contempt. I want to throw a question out there because this is when Amsterdam is obviously trying to infiltrate this operation and try to get on Bill the Butcher's good side. The way Dade Lewis plays this makes me think that Bill the Butcher knew who he was the entire time. That is a very interesting interpretation. Um, I could see that. I watched this twice. And the second time, which was today, right before we started recording, I looked and I'm like, fuck, he knows. Just the way he looks at him. There's a glint in his eye that tells me he knows. I think it's a good theory, certainly not unwarranted. I think there's a point where he figures it out earlier than he lets on. Oh, interesting. What point do you think that is? I I can't quantify it, but I think it's right after, probably after she sleeps with Amsterdam. Because I, I think she, makes sense, yeah. Because he told, tells her why he's really there. Well, and there's that scene that we'll get to later that I think is kind of the key scene in the movie, perhaps. But, but we'll, we'll get to that. So Amsterdam, he is slowly making his way into Bill the Butcher's gang and gaining his trust, showing off his sort of ability to think for himself and to, like, operate as an independent sort of criminal. He comes up with this idea of selling dead bodies to medical schools and stuff to get a, to get the money. And so it's the ghoul gang is what the newspaper started to call it. This time when I watched the movie, I noticed how many times they had these insert shots of the newspapers with the, uh, the illustrations that would come with the newspapers at that time. Yeah. And how many times we have to see like a little drawing of fake DiCaprio with his hair. And I just think that's really funny. <laughs> but anyway, so... Amsterdam finds out that Bill plans on uh, celebrating his victory over his father at a Chinese, what would you call that exactly? A Chinese, 
bar, a restaurant. It's I don't know, he's, like a brothel, basically. Yeah, it's kind of all purposes, sort of opium day and everything. And so he plans that that's going to be the moment that he strikes because when you kill a king, you kill him in front of everyone, and that that's going to be the moment that he finally takes his revenge. But he's also around this time noticed by Monk, the Brendan Gleeson character, who is not only uh, recognizes him, but no figures out that he is the son of the priest and basically keeps his secret safe. But this is around the time where someone else who knows his secret starts to feel his loyalty slip a bit, which is Johnny starts to become jealous over the romantic attraction developing between uh, Jenny and Amsterdam and starts to uh, harbor some resentments that will bear fruit a little bit later. And uh, after Amsterdam saves Bill's life, from an assassination attempt at, uh, what is it, a uh, production of Uncle Tom's Cabin? <laughs> uh, it's, just, it's such a great bit of place to get in, in a specific time and place. With the guy suspended from a, from a wire dressed as Abraham Lincoln and, like, the crowd throwing <laughs> tomatoes at him and stuff. So kind of uh, hilariously over the top, and, and but historical at the same time. And Amsterdam saves Bill's life from uh, this serious assassin. And this is around the time that we really get a sense of the physicality of Bill the Butcher as he sort of disarms this guy and teaches him to speak English with this fucking knife or whatever yeah. he says. Yeah, this is also the time when it started to drag for me. I was on the Weinstein side around this time because we're seeing the love story and we're seeing this relationship develop between the two. I don't know. Am I the only one, guys? Did you guys feel like this was a little boring sometimes? Most of the love triangle dynamics are where the movie loses me because I, I don't feel Scorsese's heart is in these scenes. Um, He's never, with the exception of The Age of Innocence, he's never been a romantic filmmaker or someone who's really focused on interpersonal like relationships between three people, if that makes any sense. They, they tend to be very singular. Like, you know, I think of Goodfellas, there's the Henry and his wife that gets confrontational, but there's not that second person he's always trying to fight off. I guess the closest would be James Woods in Casino. Right, but, he's, but they're... He's kind, of, he's kind of like her pimp. That's that's kind of a different dynamic, but I do like, because this is Scorsese, that lust and envy two of the seven deadly sins as a Catholic are part of what undoes Amsterdam's facade. Oh yeah, that's a, that's an interesting reading on that. And you have the whole thing that's kind of like the classic Scorsese dynamic of the sort of the Madonna horror complex a little bit. It's not super well developed here, but he's uh, Amsterdam's interested in Jenny until he finds out that she's been with Bill the Butcher and has a whole backstory involving Bill getting her pregnant and then the baby being cut out of her and it's something that you can see being engaging in the right context if it were executed better but i don't think it's i mean it's diaz doesn't really sell it (laughs) she just no she doesn't she just doesn't and it's it's it's, uh, unfortunate but she doesn't yeah but it's around this time that after amsterdam saves bill's life and he feels very conflicted afterwards because he's like wait a second i just saved this guy's life he starts to see him as a uh, sort of a kind of a father figure essentially even though he hates him and wants to kill him it's this kind of ambivalent mixture of him because he, he's taken him under his wing and bill is attracted to his intelligence and his boldness and so he sees somebody who sees something in him and this kind of culminates in i keep saying that word today but this kind of climaxes in Bill's... I mean, this must have been Daniel Day-Lewis. Was this his Oscar clip? I feel like it must have <laughs> I, been. I feel like uh, it was, No, too. I'm pretty sure they used the scene where he's draped in the flag. That's what I'm saying. It, it, that's after he's celebrating, after he's been injured from the assassination attempt. And he's got the American flag draped over him, and he starts telling him about... He's clearly, like, he probably had a, a few to drink, and he's sort of in a very vulnerable, emotional place. And it's this incredible performance by Day-Lewis just talking about how he lost his father at the, in the 
War of 1812 and how proud he is to be an American, but how he also has to rule by fear and how he doesn't respect anybody and every person he's killed he doesn't respect except for the priests. And it's this incredible performance, but I also think it's very indicative of some of the problems of the film because Day-Lewis is so incredible in this scene and is just absolutely, you cannot take your eyes off him. It's so amazing. And DiCaprio is just kind of present. Yes. <laughs> Although, I, you know, I, I do think he, he holds his own, I think, against Dave Lewis. I think, like I said, I think he, he's okay in these scenes, but still, I still just don't like his character as much as I can respect the work that he does in these particular scenes. One thing you notice, I don't think Daniel Day Lewis blinks in this entire speech. And if he does, they don't linger on it. It's utterly captivating, and I wish the rest of the writing in the movie was as good as this. And you start to see, like, I get the sense that of these three writers, Steve Zalian and Kenneth Lonergan probably wrote the better dialogue. Because hmm. Jake Cox, he, he had done Age of Innocence with Scorsese, but because it's an adaptation, so much of it's lifted. And because this is also an adaptation, but purely a work of nonfiction, you know, nothing else he's written has been great. You know, Strange Days is okay. Well, he did write Silence. Yeah, that's true. But I, I think... This is indicative of having three writers on a project of this magnitude. You needed yeah. one unified vision, and I don't feel like you get that in any parts of this movie outside of like the editing or the art direction, those kinds of technical pieces, but all the conception pieces like the screenwriting, I think of too many folks in the kitchen. Yeah, and we're getting Star Wars political scenes here, too. We're seeing these elections and things, and I, I don't know what this is supposed to build. And I, like I said, I just feel like the majority of this middle to third quarter just drag too much for me and that could have been tightened up quite a bit well i love the political stuff i, uh, I, the, uh, I knew you would <laughs> yeah it's uh, come on Fox i'm with Queen, yeah i'm with mike Samuel. i love all the stuff with jim broadbent because that feels more tied in with the drag riots and the you know the tammany hall politics which was very corrupt and it caused a lot of damage to the city and hall was really one of the most powerful people in the country not just in his own little pocket of new york and I love the the shot of they go to Tammany Hall and uh, Bill is talking to Boss Tweed and Amsterdam and Johnny are standing outside and there's that statue of I think Chief Tammond who is uh, clearly a, a, a native Native American like indigenous figure who the who the Tammany Hall is named after and he's just kind of overlooking them all and it's just this great kind of moment of there's a history even before this you know yeah. what I mean if this is the origin story of modern New York there was a New York even before that and like it's like a ghost that's kind of watching the whole thing this is around the time that Johnny goes to Bill the Butcher and he reveals that Amsterdam is actually the son of Priest Valen Amsterdam is very lucky that at no point Bill asked him his last name, which uh, I yeah, think you just no kind of have to accept. Yeah, and uh, can I can I just say, before you get to that, I think the reason why these scenes with DiCaprio and DeLewis work for me is because of the conflict within Amsterdam in that, you know, his father's dead, killed by this guy, but yet for somehow, some way, he's starting to find another father figure. So he yeah. has been teaching him a lot of different things, and I love that conflict there. I just wish that DiCaprio could have emoted that a little bit better. Yeah, I would agree. And then this goes into the scene at the Chinese place, Bill celebrating his victory. And this is this is kind of, I wonder how much of this is, I, you know, I compared this to a Kung Fu kind of plot earlier, and I wonder if maybe Scorsese is trying to deliberately evoke some of that here, because the way that this Chinese setting works into what happens in the scene, I think is really interesting and in how trickle it kind of is and how the battles kind of build between these characters, where Bill knows that 
Amsterdam is going to try and kill him at some point, and he's toying with them psychologically. He does this knife-throwing routine with Jenny, which is fantastically shot. And yeah. just a very clever kind of, of scene where it uses what we know about how powerful the Butcher is and how skilled he is, but also how dangerous he is in, in, in this kind of one moment. It's so tense. And yeah. I think a real great scene. I'll agree with that. And Bill, that's a toast to the priest. And at that moment, Amsterdam makes his attempt to kill him, but throws his knife and is deflected, which is deflected by Bill, who quickly overpowers him, beats the shit out of him, and humiliates him in front of everybody. Oh. Says that he will not kill him because he ain't armed the death by my hands. The weird thing about this is, isn't this probably... Another thing the Weinsteins jumped down on, whereas you're not going to defile the face of our star. And I think DiCaprio would have been up for it. But the fact that he just takes the knife and he just kind of burns a scar on him, that doesn't really do much. <laughs> yeah, it's so underwhelming, bit. yeah. He's got this little tick. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I got something like that on my arm from taking a pizza out of the oven. <laughs> like, it's not it's not really that big. And he, like, really oversells it. Uh, Absolutely. Like, yeah. I'll make him a freak. You know, and it's like it gives him a slight burn on his face. Which yeah, is... and then looking back at this, you know, it's crazy to think that this movie's already 20 years old. But 20 years later, we've seen DiCaprio disfigure himself. We know he'd be willing to do it. But I think this was also just the producers just saying, you know what? He's too bankable a star. We can't make his face that distorted for the rest of this film. I agree. Because we know that if he will wear the old age makeup from J. Edgar, Absolutely. he'll yeah. do anything. <laughs> yeah, so. he'll do anything. Well, maybe Iron Mask, he's like all deformed and shit. But not like the way they could have done here, Matt. That, that's what I'm saying. He should have no, yeah. cut his eyes out. Should look like, he should look like Two-Face with the amount yeah. of time the, he the potential, with that. The potential they could have done to do something like that here is what gets me. And, yeah. and that's why I think we go back to Matt's point of this being compromised. I Definitely think this was compromised. He should lose his eye. I think it's yeah, a very good point. I mean, I, I think that's such a gimme. I mean, with Bill only having one eye, I think that that's kind of like that's. I don't know if I'm if I'm the fourth writer they bring onto this after Zalian Cox and Lonergan, I'd be like, so he cuts the eye out. Yeah, right? the, he only has one eye. The literal version of eye for an eye. Yeah, but anyways, that doesn't happen. He's very mildly burnt, kind of uh, a uh, Gerard Butler in Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> Actually, that that's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> And this is where the plot calculus for Amsterdam starts to change, where instead of worming his way into Bill's good graces and then striking, he decides that he's basically going to resurrect his father's gang, the Dead Rabbits, and form his own force to take on Bill and the natives head-to-head. He begins doing this, takes an actual Dead Rabbit and places it right at the heart of the five points to signal to everybody that the Dead Rabbits are back. This is around the time that, I guess, he, he gets into his with John C. Riley. Can I just say, I kind of want John C. Riley. I feel like he's been in this comedy lane for so long now, uh-huh. and he's so good at it, of course. I feel like he used to be more a more sort of diverse kind of character actor, and he could play someone like this real nasty cop character that he plays here. I agree with you. I, I think there are times when John C. Riley is just too typecast, and people just kind of look at him as the other dumb brother and stepbrother. He, he does so much more than that. And I kind of wish he would have been one of Scorsese's other collaborators where he could have been at least a background character in the rest of the films we're wow. on this series. Yeah, he has the he will be. Well, yeah. Well, we'll talk about that. I was going to say, instead of his muse was Adam McKay for some ungodly reason. Yeah. 
and Amsterdam decides that, that he's going to organize the Irish as not only a gang, but as a political force in the city. And he approaches uh, Boss Tweed about running an Irishman for political office, sheriff, and they decide that Monk will be the perfect recruit for that. And I, I, I just want to say, I feel like I haven't talked about it as much here. I love Brendan Gleeson in this movie. I think he's so good. It's not a huge part in terms of he has a number of scenes, but he has, you know, a lot less to do in terms of characterization than DiCaprio or Jay Lewis. But I think he just absolutely brings this total integrity to all of his performances, but especially here and, and the pathos that he lays on in this movie when he's he's talking to DiCaprio and taking him in as a kind of surrogate son. Yeah. I think it's just really affecting. I, I agree with that. My go-to with him, and I think a lot of people's, is in Bruges. He's, yeah. he's so good in that. But I agree with you. He's another one of these character actors who I wish could kind of have been more recognized for his work because he does do really good work in this. He's got Harry Potter money to live on. That's true. There's a, a, a sort of montage of them running Monk for, for sheriff, and he's going up against the nativist candidate. And they do some of the classic kind of political machine tricks where you take a guy and he's voted and you take him to the barber shop and you shave his beard off and then you have him go and vote again. And it's pretty funny, I think. He wins in a landslide. They kind of just make up the vote total. He becomes sheriff. Seems like maybe a new day politically is dawning. Of course, that's not the case because a very infuriated Bill the Butcher comes, tracks him down and dabs him in the back with a hatchet yep. uh, while he's not looking and unarmed. Very cowardly. Act and I think this is like uh, plot-wise a, a sort of turning point for Bill the Butcher as a character because it, it, like in a western you can't shoot somebody in the back mm-hmm. and uh, expect to be the good guy after that and it's not like he's been a good guy up to this point but at least abided by the ancient laws of combat he puts it in the first scene uh, and this is a moment when things kind of move into their final sort of end game after the funeral yeah he at this point he's Henry Hill when he's hopped up on cocaine. Like, yeah. he, he becomes the complete antithesis of everything he was taught and preached. Yeah, that's a, that's actually a really good call. I, I, that's a good way of putting it. This is when the political situation and the, the war situation starts to combine with the gang situation because the draft riot, or the draft is, uh, uh, they're naming people and no one can afford to send a substitute in their place because it's 1863 and nobody has $300. And it turns into a full-on riot, which was the draft riots of July 1863 when thousands of poor immigrants and the draft riots of 1863, thousands of poor men and uh, immigrants and stuff and angry people, a lot of them very viciously racist, start to rebel and and, and riot against the system that they see as unfair against them. And this turns into complete chaos with people going out into the streets and shattering windows and going yeah. into people's houses and lynching people, burning orphanages to the ground, uh, looting fire stations and police stations, and turns into uh, absolute chaos on the same day that the two gangs, the Dead Rabbits and the Natives, are uh, supposed to go head-to-head. And this is an area where I feel like Scorsese doesn't do director's cuts. He's the anti-Michael Mann mm-hmm. in that sense. <laughs> when he direct, he's or really always said Scott. that. Yeah, or really Scott, yeah. And he's he's always said that like when he makes something, if he if he gets a cut of it, that's the cut of it. It might be something that he, he settled on with the studio in one way or the other, but he's like that's the movie, and so this is the movie. So we will never know, probably will never know what would have been in the four-hour cut of the movie or whatever like that. But these draft riots. I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but I feel like there's a lot that ends up on the cutting room floor 
that kind of get elided by this. It's not really voiceover, but these little snippets of the telegraph operator saying, oh, they're on, on Mulberry Street, they're tearing down the this, that, the other. And yeah. these like kind of quick shots of chaos erupting. I feel like there was probably a lot that got cut out. Uh, you know what? I, I can't believe be more opposite than you. I, I think this was something that was probably mandated by the Weinsteins. You need to put more action in this thing. You're building this story. It's all great. But we need more chaos to ensue in this movie. And I think this is honestly, I think this is yet another compromise by Scorsese to make it move a little faster. And this scene here, it gives you something to look at. It was pretty much a mandate. That's my feeling. And I think it was here just to make the movie move a little bit faster. I'm pretty sure this aspect of the undoing and the draft riots would have been something that, in a longer cut, would have been more of a point of emphasis. Like, this could have been the entire third act. I could almost see it because I could have seen, like, Phantom Menace, where the, the draft riots are intercut with the actual gang battle. They're happening as, like, buildings are burning down and stuff. So, yeah, I, I definitely think there's more to this story than than what's here. And of all Scorsese's movies, this is probably the one I would be most intrigued at the prospect of a director's cut with. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think this is his most, like I said, his most sort of compromised film. And it's, I think the draft riots here are so key to what the whole film is about and what really gets hammered home in that last scene. But absolute chaos is broken out. There's an elephant on the streets, which is a great. Oh, I I love love that that. visual. The only thing that would have made that even better is if the chick with the knives for hands would have been riding on it or something. That would have been like (laughs) just a total mindfuck of this. Just something just does not belong. I love that Scorsese, and you can even tell the look on DiCaprio's face. It almost feels genuine. Like he's like, "What the fuck is that doing here?" No better way to show that something's gotten out of hand than to have an elephant in New York. Yeah. If Hellcat Maggie was riding on the elephant, it would have been something out. It would have been something out of Mad Max. Absolutely. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, this shit would have been Thunderdome at the end. <laughs> so uh, Thunderdome ensues. They bring in the uh, they call in the National Guard to try and establish some sense of of uh, law and order. But people are dying left and right. One of the supporting characters, played by Lawrence Gillier Jr., who's the the one black member of DiCaprio's gang, Amsterdam's gang, he gets killed pretty brutally, uh, so does Hellcat Maggie, so does McGloin, the sort of turncoat Irish character gets shot down in a, in a hail of bullets uh, by the National Guard. It's People are dying left and right, and in the middle of all this, Amsterdam and Bill the Butcher go into their final, uh, what should be their final mm-hmm. duel amongst the dust, and I really like the way that this is shot. It's so kind of abstract, you know what I mean? They they could be anywhere, they could be nowhere. The city kind of doesn't, kind of ceases to exist. And before Amsterdam can sort of lay the blows that he would like to on Bill, Bill gets hit by a bit of shrapnel right in the gut and realizes that he's dying. He will not be making his way out of this battle and kind of quietly reflects, uh, what does he say, at last uh, I die like a true yeah. American or something. Yeah, that's it. That's yeah, it. Which, which was is his real last words. Yeah, I was about ready to say that was his real final words before he died. Just before that happens, DiCaprio kind of uses his father's blade that you see in that first scene, and he kills Bill, even though he was already dying. Perhaps there's some ambiguity in that in the sense of whether this is out of mercy, out of revenge, out of both. But that's how it ends, and the... Uh, Five points have been completely devastated, both by the riots and then by the army going in and trying to, to reset order, which is they've been bombed by ships. And it's sort of like the uh, what's the line at the end of Barry Lyndon, another sort of Irish film. I, I couldn't 
finish. I can't finish that movie in one sitting. So <laughs> I, I I could recite anything outside of my go, angry yeah. yells of I hate this movie. So yeah, go listen much. to the Shining podcast to listen to that yell. <laughs> I will refrain from commenting. <laughs> but basically, it didn't matter who anybody was before the draft riots because they're all dead now. Uh, it didn't. It didn't matter which gang you were a part of or which side you were on, whether you're Irish, whether you're Native. The five points have been completely leveled, and uh, everybody, pretty much, other than DiCaprio and Diaz are dead, and everything that they cared about has kind of been wiped away, which is why I think that the draft riots are so key to what this film is about. Because it's basically about, I mean, I think it's basically about how history kind of, the forces of history sort of move on without you, and eventually they crush you. And and all all your personal issues kind of become irrelevant in the face of the larger forces of history that are creating the weather. So we're seeing this in this final montage and it's set to this horrible U2 song as New York we're seeing just evolve. And I know Scorsese loves New York and I get that, but what exactly are we supposed to think here? Like, are we supposed to think that this part of history is what built those twin towers? I don't know what I'm supposed to think while watching this final montage. I know this was released right after 9-11. In fact, they delayed this release because of 9-11. I'm just at a loss as to what to think because we're not seeing them disappear. They're still there by the time it's over. What happened? They're still there, but the grass overtakes their graves. It's uh, they're forgotten. Yeah, exactly. Everything you do, no matter if you're a Bill the Butcher and you're the king of the five points, if you're somebody who matters to people in any way, 150 years after you're dead, you know the city's still going to be there, and it will be bigger and, and completely different from what you imagined, and your grave will be forgotten. It's a very fatalistic, or not fatalistic, sorry, what's the word? It's a pretty nihil- Yeah, it's a pretty nihilistic kind of ending. But also, it's kind of the idea about how what's the line that they used to promote this film? The world America built was built in the born streets. In the streets. Yeah. Yeah. Right, America was born in the streets, and I think that's also kind of what he's getting at is that you, you know how in a western, how many westerns have the theme that the cowboy or the gunslinger, or whoever, is rough and they're kind of you know, rugged, but you need them because they're brave and they're tough, and they're the ones who are going to civilize the West by, you know, defeating the bad guys. But when it comes time for the town to be built and the city hall to be built and the church to be built, the cowboy's got to go right off in the sunset because there's not a place for him in the civilized world. I think that this is Scorsese's kind of his urban Western, where he's kind of saying, you know, these gangs that existed 150 years ago that were out on the streets and that were so bloodthirsty and everything, they're also the ones who stuffed the ballot boxes that gave us the law, the, the politicians that gave us the laws that we have. And they're the ones who economically created the situation that gives us the, the buildings that we build and the bridges that we build and everything like that. But they're in time are going to be forgotten, even though what they do in their lifetime ends up having an effect. Their actual personage gets lost to the forces of time. And I think that's what that last shot is about. And I actually, the U2 song is bad. I will not, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie about that. It's not good. And it's from that really sappy kind of style of U2 song. Yeah. I got to say this ending, despite the music, really works for me. It seems cheesy, but I don't, I I think it's actually kind of the opposite. I think it's sort of, it it seems cheesy, but it's actually kind of nihilistic. And then the way that it has that last shot of the New York City skyline with the two towers, which Scorsese said when when they asked him about that, you know, because at this point it's been over a year since 9-11, they asked him, you know, why why is that the last skyline that you see in it? And he said that his film is about the people who build cities and not those who destroy them. And so I think that that's such a powerful final shot 
and then the cut from that to the black screen and then the the title I think is is very powerful powerful enough that it makes me kind of overlook the song in the same way that I think that there's that audio slave song in that scene in Collateral <laughs> yeah. where I, I see the scene and I'm like oh this scene's so great and the song's so great and then I go listen to the song I'm like oh this sucks the scene is <laughs> that's a very very overpowering song I like the visual I just kind of question although right before that I did like the fact that Amsterdam buried Bill the Butcher right next to his dad I thought that was a very nice form of parallelism of these two guys fathering him in different ways um yeah. so i i really enjoyed that i like the u2 song i don't know what you guys are getting at i think wow it's dude this is so savvy and stupid oh then again i'm kind of biased because i'm against u2 because i had an ex who loved them well but... i like u2 sometimes but this yeah, kind yeah. of YouTube, I, I'm, not I'm biased because i love their batman forever song i'll i'll oh, stay Jesus. i'll stand i'll stand that fight but i i think mike's I jumped in when Mike was trying to fill in the gaps to his statement, and I co-signed on those wholeheartedly as far as what's trying to convey. So, yeah, I think I think it's a it's a good ending. Okay, so that was Gangs of New York. Uh, scale of one to ten, what are you guys thinking about this one? Matt, you want to go with this one? I think the, the the underlying word that I would use to describe my overall feelings is conflicted. I feel like greatness is the bed sheet that you have to settle for on the bed of Scorsese films. I don't think there's anything I'd score less than a five, maybe a four. I have to rewatch Bringing Out the Dead just to get my thoughts on that, Garrett. So we'll see. But the problem for me is that it's just I see the artistic integrity of Scorsese against the commercial needs of Miramax. So with the latter winning out, it's hard for me to call this a great movie, but I, I do think it's good. When you when you have a performance as captivating as Daniel Day-Lewis, I, I do think that elevates the movie a lot. And I do think that if if Leo was a little bit better or that character was beefed up more, and Lord knows if Cameron Diaz and Jenny were done better service, I do think this would be a film that's better remembered. But of the five films we're going to discuss, this is nowhere near my favorite. I'm going to land on a, like a low seven on 10. It's so impeccably crafted too, as far as the set design and the stages and the crowds that I give a lot of respect for that for someone who is not well known for these kinds of movies. So I'm going to go a low seven on 10 for me. Garrett? Oh boy. You know, this movie, this is just one of those movies where every time I want to love it, there's just something that happens where I just can't. There are parts that I do love. The first 45 minutes of this movie are phenomenal, as I mentioned. We've gone into the machinations of the behind-the-scenes compromises and things. I'm not going to get into that. But I will co-sign a lot of what Matt said in that those compromises do damn this movie. One of those being the essential casting of Cameron Diaz as Jenny, which, again, I'm not holding it all on Cameron Diaz. But I think she is just so tough to watch in all of her scenes. Like, I just I don't like her at all. If we were to podcast this right after I... I'd seen it in theaters in 2002, I would have said, you know, this was good, but I think it'd be a one-off. I can't see these two working together again. Little would I have known. <laughs> DiCaprio is good. He's not great. Daniel Day-Lewis, I've definitely said my piece on. I, I think there are things that this movie 
it's it's not a great movie, but it's a movie I do enjoy watching. I will watch it more often now. I, I did see more things in this that I liked this time than I have in the past. And 2002 was a great one-two punch for DiCaprio. I think that was the one where I kind of looked at him as having that respect in that I, he was in this and Catch Me If You Can, which are two different movies by two great directors. And I think this is the lesser of the two. I, I, if you're going to see a great 2002 DiCaprio movie, see Catch Me If You Can. If you want to see a pretty good one, watch this one. Yeah, I'll co-sign Matt's score as well. I'm going to go 7 on 10. So the thing about this movie is that to me, and I absolutely love Scorsese, like I said, he's my favorite director. This is near the very bottom, I think, of his filmography, which sounds rough, but I just think that his filmography is really fucking good. So when I say that this is near the bottom, I'm speaking kind of, we're, we're talking about some of the best films of all time here. This is his most compromised film. I think you don't even need to know about the backstory of the film to be able to tell that. I think the editing by Thelma Schoonmaker, actually, I don't know if it's Schoonmaker or Schoonmaker, but the editing is, I think, at times very clearly trying to do a lot of the lifting in terms of stitching together a film that has stuff cut out of it and that has to explain certain things that aren't necessarily obvious in the filmmaking. And I think that the voiceover by DiCaprio, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm almost certain that that's, this was something that was added late in the film. Like, this was something that was done in a late edit to try and pull the whole thing together. And I think that this is a pretty disjointed movie, that it's a very uh, uneven movie, that there's parts of it that don't work at all, that the lead actor is miscast, that there's certain amounts of stock characterization that comes into it. All of this makes it a very flawed film. It is, it is maybe his most flawed film. That having been said, it has this incredible, utterly watchable performance by Daniel Day-Lewis as Bill the Butcher, which, you know, you said earlier, and it kind of took me back, it might be his best work. You know, I mean, people love There Will Be Blood. I think this is a better version of that kind of character. And you've got all these great sort of character actors and people like Brendan Gleeson and Jim Broadbent. And you have this amazing sense of time and place that's unlike any other film out there. Nobody else has ever attempted to do a movie set in this part of the world when it is in, in amongst the classes that it's set in. And there's images from this film that have always stuck with me from the opening scene of the, the gangs assembling on that snowy day at the five points to the uh, one moment of the romance that I like, which is the, the scene where they're dancing with the candles to various battle scenes in the set. And there's things in this movie that I would always recommend as something that people should see before they die. You can't separate those moments from the things in the movie that I think don't work. This is such a disjointed kind of mess of a movie, but in a way that is at times quite beautiful and at times extremely frustrating. I'm going to go with the seven out of ten. This is a, a flush on our parts, but I, I think that this is an interesting film in both what it succeeds at, but also uh, in what it fails at. Okay, so next week, we're going to be getting into The Aviator. Turns out that Scorsese did collaborate with Leonardo DiCaprio again, yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys got any thoughts on The Aviator before we head out? Oh. I know Garrett does. Oh, boy. Does he. He, could write a no- he could write a novel on what he has to say about that movie, so I'll start. Anyone who knows me knows I have a real soft spot for old Hollywood, and there's a lot in The Aviator that tickled my fancy when I heard heard about it, or I should say when it was introduced to me. It's not like I saw it in the theater when I was 11 or 10 or whenever this came out, but I have only seen it once, I think. Of the five, this is the only one I, I have not rewatched, and one of these five movies, for the record, I have seen about 40 times. Gee, I wonder which one that is based on where I live. <laughs>
So I will I will let everyone do the math, but um, don't expect all of us to give the same score next week because I guarantee you that is not going to happen again. Oh, and now I'm excited. Yeah, this is one that I, I will say I've seen all five of these movies in theaters. Yeah, I definitely have thoughts. I want to save every single one of those thoughts for next week, but I will just say that I will go with Matt and say it's not going to be an agreeable podcast. And if you have any questions as to what movie I was thinking at the beginning of this podcast as one of my least favorite, you're probably going to be not too surprised next week. And uh, I will I will rewatch it. Look, I'm going to rewatch it with a very open mind, okay? I haven't seen it in over 15 years. It's been a long time. DiCaprio's done a lot since then. He's won an Oscar since then. I will go in very open-minded, but this is the one viewing I was looking least forward to. God, what a to be continued. I feel like like we're at the end of an episode of Succession. I'm like, oh, what's going to happen next? <laughs> yeah, so uh, The Aviator, well, I don't want to giveaway completely but uh i guess we'll find out who who i fall in line with on this one i think it might be predictable in some ways but we'll see all right until next week sweet jesus podcasting does terrible things to people thank you you're not one for tears and well neither am i so it's best to come out with it let's be honest it's all been a grand adventure but it couldn't possibly last Thank you for listening to this episode of the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast, exclusively on Percolated Media. Well done. Join us next week for an entirely new review. Which would be worse, to live as a monster or to die as a good man? And if you would be so kind please take a moment to give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. It truly helps others to find and discover these podcasts. I got this rat, this annoying, cheating fucking rat. The Three Men and a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam and Nathan. Don't tell me I can't do it. Don't tell me it can't be done. Edited by Garrett. That's a sorry looking pelf. Voiceovers by Adam. This is Howard Hughes. Howard and I were just discussing how he wants me to pull a camera out of my ass. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. Hunt the flesh, kill the flesh, eat the flesh, that's the uh, male 
sex all over. way of the future the way of the future the way of the future the way of the future mm-hmm. gangs of new york released december 20th 2002 budget 100 million dollars box office 193 million dollars directed of course by Martin Scorsese. Ah, uh, it's great to not have to do that. <laughs> hey, welcome. To- <laughs> he doesn't have to look at Wikipedia for five seconds. <laughs> welcome to mm-hmm. Dante Ferretti. It was the production designer. It's the great Dante Ferretti, and Mikey there. I'm here. He cut out completely. Oh, he did cut out. He might have texted us. Hang on. Yeah, he did. Yeah, you're 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 gone like Sarah Michelle Geller was from this project. <laughs> Damn it! You took another one of my fucking points. <laughs> oh man, we were getting we were such a well flow. There you yeah. are. What happened? Okay, I have no clue. I was just talking and it just suddenly closed out. All right. Yeah. Go ahead. Talk about Dante Peretti. You, you missed my joke that I stole yeah. from Garrett's notes. <laughs> oh, no. What was it? Uh, you'll hear it in the bloopers. Mm-hmm. Like harrowing films like ever released by an American studio. But <laughs> where, where was I? Um, uh, Daniel B. Lewis. Oh, yeah. So we meet all the guys. We meet all the... <laughs> Chris, you, you killed my father prepared to die and I have to ask is that boy anybody famous like he grew up to be someone famous um, let me see. I have no idea Let's do some quick googling here what if he was like uh, Young Amsterdam played by Sian McCormick uh, that, no. Yeah, no, no, no. Hasn't done anything to season six either. It's weird that there's no Colin Farrell and there's also no Killian Murphy. Yeah. It's true, yeah. It's weird that there's no Colin Farrell and there's also no Killian Murphy. Yeah. It's true, yeah, yeah. And nowadays uh, there'd also be, um, uh, what's that, what's that show? Peaky Blinders? Oh, jeez. Just, just get everybody from that. Like Tom Hardy would be in this thing. You, you know, damn good and well, Tom Hardy would have played Bill the Butcher if this came out nowadays. Tom uh, Hardy probably dreams of playing Bill the Butcher every night. Yeah, he probably does. <laughs> All right, Mike, get into do a voice and beat people up and like have like a weird <laughs> face. Like, yeah, I love that. Uh, uh, so, okay, All right, Mike. So we... mm-hmm. 
Okay, so that was Gangs of New York. Uh, scale of 1 to 10, what are you guys thinking about this one? Matt, you want to go with this one? Garrett, I was hoping you would take Garrett. Because <laughs> <laughs> our tradition is I always go first. I was hoping to break tradition. Um, 